Hey, before, before we get into our, our conversation this morning on all things new, um, Courtney had mentioned last week that we did have a brief financial report. We, d- we do a financial report around this time of the year every year so that you as a body know how we're doing. Uh, we, we do it other times of the year as well. But we discovered last week, as Courtney alluded to, that we're about $7,000 below budget. And that is projected then by the end of the fiscal year to be about $15,000 uh, below budget. But that doesn't scare us. That doesn't make us nervous. Um, we believe in a God who provides. And so we're certainly putting our trust in him. But what I also believe is that God is not going to rain money down from the sky. I believe that God uses his people, that he is entrusted with their resources, to accomplish his purposes. And we see that in the series. We've seen it several times. We're going to continue to see it throughout the series that God uses people that he entrusts with their resources, whether that be time or talent or money or energy or whatever other resource we have been given. He entrusts those to us so that we might use those to further his kingdom. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, right, he's going to talk about money because that's what pastors always talk about. They always talk about money. That's all they really want is money. And unfortunately, that may be your experience with the church. That may have been what you grew up hearing. That may be an unfortunate stereotype of the church at large, unfortunately, again. But I want you to know that I don't want your money. I want your entire life to be reoriented around Jesus, okay? I don't want your money. I want your whole life to be reoriented around Jesus, to be reprioritized around Jesus. That's really what we're about. I want your life to be reprioritized around Jesus. At the end of the day, that's our goal, that we would become more like Jesus. So please hear me when I say I don't want your money. I want your whole life. Now, your generosity is going to be a byproduct then of you becoming more like Jesus, and that's just the simple truth. That as we become more like Jesus, we become more generous people. And so I am challenging everyone to a new level of commitment in their pursuit of Jesus. At the end of the day, that is our challenge. That is our pursuit. Take a step of faith, not only with your money, but with your life. Take a step closer to Jesus. So if you're not currently in a group, my challenge to you is to get into a group. Because in a group, you're going to find people you can connect with. You're going to find people who will care for you and carry you when life gets hard, you're going to find people who will push you towards Jesus in the context of community. If you're not currently serving, my challenge to you is begin serving. Because serving is going to actually do more for you in your relationship with God and relationship with others than it's going to do for the church as a whole, although we do need volunteers, of course. If you feel like you're already serving a lot, then invite a friend to serve with you because our best volunteers are recruited by our best volunteers. And I certainly believe that. And the reason I push for this now is because God is growing this church. And God is moving us into some really exciting things in 2019. And so we need to get to a place where we can sustain and match what God is doing with us as a church. And so we're going to keep unveiling what this exactly looks like um, over the next several weeks, if not months. But one of the first things we're working on is our staffing and our org chart. And so we are redeveloping our our whole philosophy around what it means to be staff and how we um, go about um, accomplishing the task on that staff level. But one of the things we have realized for a very long time is that we do need another pastor on staff. And I'll tell you, there are times when I feel like quitting. What would happen if Restoration Church, and I don't don't say this to like, I don't know, I'm putting myself too, too far at the center of this, but there are times when I'm like, you know what? I could use a break. (laughs) It's just, it's just the truth. It's just the reality. But we need another staff on, on uh, another pastor on staff so that we can continue to shepherd and disciple our people and do that in a better and better way. Beyond that, we're having a, a conversation about starting a third service at some point in the near future. 
because this room is full. It's full to capacity as far as church growth goes. Um, if you look at the nine o'clock, it's, um, it's, it's not a lot fewer people than this, honestly. Uh, and so it's exciting. We are, we are filling out, which is really, really exciting. Um, but a third service, can you imagine the undertaking that a third service requires? It's a lot. It's a lot of work. And so we need to raise up our volunteer base, and we need to raise up our giving base in order to accomplish that. Um, and so we're going to challenge you with uh, a variety of things this morning, but one of those is to consider if you are able to move to the nine o'clock service where there is a little more room, especially as we head towards Easter. We need to move some people from this service to the nine o'clock service so that this service can have more room as we get closer to Easter. Now, I'm personally very excited about the prospect of a third service, but there are certainly things that we can do in the meantime to delay that, and one of those is moving some people from the service to the nine o'clock service because the 1030 service is always going to be, for the most part, where people where guests first come. But we'll involve you more in those plans as they come uh, forward, as they continue to be unveiled about what that third service might look like, because I'm not convinced that the third service will be on Sunday mornings, and I'm not convinced that the service will necessarily be within this building as well. And so that's exciting news, what that might look like and what that might feel like, what that might mean for our community as a whole, what demographic we might be able to reach. And so, but... I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to slow down a little bit. So here's the thing. We, we need everybody's commitment to Jesus here at Restoration Church, and that's the bottom line of this, right? I want you to grow more to become like Jesus because I believe it's going to benefit not only Restoration, but it's going to benefit the, the whole community. Because our world is getting darker and darker, is it not? I don't think the world is getting better. I think the world is, is getting worse and worse, and I don't think the world is going to change itself. And so we need everybody to step up and to make a new commitment to Christ, that Restoration Church, so that we can reach our community with the gospel of Jesus. And my friends, I'll, I say all this not for the sake of Restoration Church, because we want to be this huge mega church in our community that's going to run up against all sorts of challenges. The more we grow, the more challenges we face. I say this for the sake of your neighbor. I say this for the sake of your coworker. I say this for the sake of your friends. I say this for the sake of your mother and your father who need the light and the hope of Jesus Christ. But each chair in here, each empty chair, represents a person who's not currently here that needs the hope and the life of Jesus Christ. And so the more we grow, the more we're able to impact our community. And so I say all this not for restoration's sake. I say it for the sake of those we love. And we are a church on mission that each one of us would reach one. And as that individual that we reach experiences life change, then perhaps that individual would reach into their own household and they would experience household change and then neighborhood change and then community change and then world change. I mean, that's how it works. Trickled. One person could change the course of a family and that family could change the course of a neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so let's be a catalyst for change for Christ. I believe that we can. I believe God is growing us for that purpose. And so this morning we're introducing a challenge. It is a 20-20-20 challenge. We are hoping that 20 families or people who do not currently give financially to the cause of Christ at Restoration Church would begin to give financially. And we're not going to check up on you to make sure that you're doing this. This is really a commitment that you're making to God in faith. And that giving might be $10 a week. It might be $50 a week. It might be $1,000 a month. I don't know the depth of your pockets and what God is calling you to do, but 
Will you be faithful and make a first step of commitment towards Christ here at Restoration Church in the way that you give? And beyond that, we're looking for 20 new people to begin volunteering specifically on Sunday mornings. There are so many other ways to volunteer beyond Sunday mornings, but specifically on Sunday mornings. And that could be greeting people at the door. It could be down in our kids' wing, um, discipling the, the kids of Restoration Church. So 20 new people to begin serving on Sunday mornings. And then 20 people from this service to commit to the 9 a.m. service, at least for the season as we get... Um, through Easter and into the summer months. So I'm going to invite the ushers forward, and they're going to give you a little blue card. And my challenge to you is to pray about this right now. Pray about what God is calling you to do here. Pray about what level of commitment he is calling you to. And then if you are ready to mark off any of these boxes, then take this card at the end of the service. You can bring back my friend Julie. She'll be at the Next Step kiosk. You can hand it to her. And one of the reasons we ask you to stand and to actually bring it in rather than just throwing in the offering plate is because it is a commitment you are making. To stand up and say, you know what, I'm doing this. God has entrusted me with these resources. I am going to contribute to his cause at Restoration Church. And so here's the thing. We're not going to look at this and say, hey, yeah, this person, you know, signed the new giver form. We're not going to call you next week and remind you to give. We're not going to call you next week and ask how much you give. This is simply an act of faith between you and God and that be because you want to be a part of what God is doing here at Restoration. So some of you are thinking, Ross, I already give. Aren't you going to challenge me? I didn't get a chuckle in the first service either. You can chuckle if you hear that. <laughs> God, I already give. Aren't you going to challenge me? Yes, we are going to challenge you a <laughs> little. Thank you, Alicia. We are going to challenge you later. Um, I will have not forgotten about you, okay? Your turn is coming in a couple weeks. I say all this because we believe that we need to raise the funds in order to match the growth of our church, which is super, super exciting, guys. God is doing something so cool here at Restoration Church, and we're so excited for you all to be a part of it. And so pray about this and how you can help make it happen. And we're going to keep updating this and inform you of how this is going. Fill it out, bring it back to the next step kiosk, and then we'll be uh, in touch with you if it pertains to volunteerism, for instance. And then we'll see some of you hopefully next week at the 9 a.m. service. We're going to continue on with our series titled All Things New This Morning. (coughs) If you've been with us, you may remember that this is series one of three series that are going to walk us through the entire story of Scripture. And so we're still in the the early stages of the story. Next week, we're bringing in the next phase of the story, and it is called Tasteless. Now, one of the the, uh, vocations of Israel was that they were to be the salt of the earth, that they were to represent God well to the world, and that through their representation, all the world might come to know who God is because of how they did that. But the implication is they did not do it very well. They were tasteless. They did not represent God well. And so this next series, which will be four weeks long, is going to be fairly dark. Um, There's not... (laughs) The, the story is dark. The story is, is, is very dark. Of course, there's, there's remnants of hope through it all, but by and large, the Israelites did not do a very good job of representing God well to the world. So if you've been around and you need to catch up, or if you haven't been around and you need to catch up on where the series has been, it's important that you do so because each week is a building on the next. Um, you can do that in three ways. You can download our app, you can subscribe to our podcast, or you can go to our media page on our website and listen to the messages there. The reason we're doing a series like this is because a lot of people know some of the stories in the Bible, but a lot of people don't know the story of the Bible. And unfortunately, a lot of people know just enough stories about the Bible that they dismiss the whole story of Scripture because of the few stories that they do know of. So we want to help you be informed about the grand narrative of what Scripture is trying to communicate. And so let me really really quickly recap where we've been, and then we'll take the next step in the story. (coughs) Genesis 1. We learn that God is taking something very unorganized and chaotic, and he is 
organizing it and making it beautiful. He's bringing it somewhere purposeful and beautiful. And at the pinnacle of this creation account is humanity made in the image of God, that we are to be like him, to represent God to the world. In fact, to be made in God's image means that we are his representation, that we are to represent him, we are to be like him so that we represent God well on the earth. But as humans are cultivating the earth or bringing it somewhere purposeful, A serpent slithers his way into their midst and convinces them to abandon their vocation as co-rulers and co-laborers and instead to claim autonomy and to put themselves upon the throne and to be self-centered and self-focused and self-reigning, to think most of ourselves, to put us at the middle of all of our actions and thoughts. We are very selfish, selfish people. But immediately after humanity experiences this burden, they know that something's not right. Immediately they know that something is wrong with them. Immediately they know that something is broken. They had rejected God's life and immediately they felt shame and they felt guilt. And in response to this new experience, they turned, as we all do, to, say it with me, religion. Thank you, we talk about this a lot. Religion is just that thing that we do and attempt to fix the problem we all know we have. That's exactly what religion is. Some people do this in churches, some people do this in bars. Some people do this by holding prayer beads. Other people do this by running away from their situation. Some people do this by lighting candles. Other people do it by lighting joints. We all do this in some regard. We recognize that there's something wrong with us, and so we do something in order to try to fix it. We run, we hide, we escape, we cover up, we lie, we cheat, we steal, and attempt to fix the internal guilt, the internal shame, the brokenness that we all experience. But my friends, religion cannot take away that feeling of guilt. It does not have the strength or the power to do that. It cannot remove your problem. All it can do is cover it up and maybe, perhaps, for a little while, help you feel better about yourself. But it cannot remove your guilt. It does not have the power to do that. And so, when religion doesn't work, we usually resort to blame shifting, which is itself another form of religion. Adam and Eve, they tried to cover up their shame and they tried to run away from their guilt, but it didn't work. And so they began blaming each other. And not only did they begin blaming each other for the mess that they found themselves in, they started blaming the serpent. They started blaming God even for the mess that they were in. They blamed each other. They found scapegoats. You guys ever done that before? I I think we've all done that to some extent. I I think so oftentimes we think, man, that's such childish, immature behavior. But I think if we're honest with each other, uh, with each other, I think that we probably do this more often than we'd like to admit. See, when our relationships aren't working, when our job performance isn't meeting expectations, when our household isn't going as the way that we would like it to, it's easy to accuse someone else for the mess, isn't it? I think it is. I think it's very easy to accuse someone else for the mess. It's easy to filter out the wrongdoing and the wickedness in ourselves, but it's, it's so easy to filter out the right doing and the goodness in other people. And it's easy and appealing to find a scapegoat in someone other than ourselves to blame for why the mess is the way that it is. And so this type of behavior was actually given a name in Scripture. A very specific name was attributed to this kind of behavior. They realized that this type of behavior was so poisonous and toxic and disruptive to God's ideal that it was the actually epitome of anti-life. And this was so destructive and toxic in relationships that they gave it a title and they gave it a name. They actually labeled this kind of behavior. The Hebrew word looks like this. That's a sheen, a tate, and a nun. Those two little T exclamation points underneath the accent marks 
um, are representatives of A's. They didn't have vowels in the Hebrew language. And so this is an S followed by an A, followed by a T, followed by an A, followed by an N. We, pro we pronounce it Satan. This is the word they gave, the type of behavior that was so toxic and so disruptive. This originally was not attributed to a person. This was not a given, a, a, a proper name given to a person or a personal name. It was a description of a behavior, behavior that threw other people under the bus so that we might escape unscathed or maybe a little less scathed. Behavior that degraded someone else as we puffed ourselves up. Behavior that threw other people down so that we might sit more firmly upon our own thrones. Behavior that blamed others while not taking ownership of the wrong that we participate in. Behavior that pointed the finger and spoke guilt and spoke shame over other people. Behavior that said, I didn't do it, it wasn't my fault, don't blame me. This behavior, and the behavior fueled by selfish, selfish ambition, self-serving, self-serving, uh, self-centered, selfish attitudes, all of this type of behavior, they called satanic. And this behavior embodied death because it was complete opposition of the way that God had created us and designed us to live as humans upon this earth. And so when humanity grasped this type of behavior, they were said to have died. We weren't living as the author of life had created us and designed us to live, and so Adam and Eve may not have died physically, but they certainly experienced death as this type of behavior flooded the world and flooded their hearts and flooded their behavior towards one another. And here's the thing, as God looks into this mess, the first thing he does, he says, you know what, guys, I'm coming to the rescue. I'm coming. I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to do something about this. Through an offspring of the woman, I'm going to crush the head of this. So here at the beginning, this incredible theme emerges from the story that will continue on and on and on as the story goes, that God does good for one person so that through that person, he can do good for all the world. He approaches Abraham, we learned. And he says, Abraham, through you and through your offspring, I am going to make the world happy again. And those offspring eventually uh, grow to be a people of 70. They find themselves enslaved to the Egyptians. And so God approaches Moses and promises through him that he will liberate his people from Egypt, a nation that had come to epitomize everything that was wrong with the world. And so God does. He brings the Israelites through the Red Sea. He liberates the people, and he leads them to a mountain called Sinai where he instructs them on what it means to be his people. And this is where we're going to pick up the story this morning. See, the people of Israel now are about 600,000 strong, and they are camping around the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses ascends the mountain to retrieve the law of God. And while on the mountain, God says this to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the translation here is, I did that, guys. That was me who did all that. Don't think for a minute that you had anything to do with your own liberation. I was the one who came to the rescue. I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt. I am the one who did that. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. And the Israelites would have immediately said, God, wait, 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 what, what covenant? We haven't entered into any sort of covenant at this point. You see, a covenant is about relating rightly to other people within the parties of that relationship. Every relationship is covenantal. And I want you to help, uh, help you understand this, that every single relationship that you engage in is covenantal. 
most of them are very informally covenantal. The only covenant that really remains, the formal covenant that remains within our society is the marriage covenant. When you go to that ceremony, for instance, of marriage, you are engaging in a covenant of marriage. People are making promises to each other about what it means to be in relationship with that person. That's what a covenant is. But every single relationship that we are all engaged in is covenantal, in theory at least. Here's the thing. If you're in a relationship with a friend, you probably didn't come together one day and say, hey, here's what it means to be in relationship with me. Here are the stipulations. Here are the parameters. Here's what you can and cannot do. Here's what you can and cannot say. I doubt any of you did that with your closest friends. But isn't it true that if your friend went and started gossiping about you and slandering you, that that relationship would now be strained and now be broken? Because you had parameters around your relationships. You had expectations about what it meant to be in relationship, and that person now went and stepped outside of those parameters, and now your relationship is hurt. And that's what always happens when people step outside the parameters of a relationship. That's what always happens. You see, right relating is always done within parameters. And if you stay within the parameters, then aren't relationships wonderful? How many of you have ever just loved someone and you just enjoyed their presence so much because you honored each other and you gave of yourself for each other and you cared for the other and you prayed for the other and you came and you served them? I mean, that's what a relationship ought to be like, right? Two people who are living within the parameters, serving each other, caring for each other, honoring each other. But you all probably, to some extent, have experienced hurt as well in relationship. And that happened because someone decided to step outside the parameters of what it meant to be in relationship with you. Or you stepped outside the parameters of what it meant to be in relationship with them, and you then hurt the relationship. I think all of us experience that to some extent as well. And so God is saying, stay in the parameters that I'm going to give you. Stay within the boundaries of what it means to be in relationship with me. And you will experience something beautiful and wonderful. And not only will you experience something beautiful and wonderful, but all the world will experience something beautiful and wonderful. Actually, out of all the nations, you are going to be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will bring for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel, I'm going to set you apart. That is what it means to be holy. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to set you aside so that you will represent me to the earth and mediate my presence, my pursuit, and my love for all people. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. All of the world is going to know who I am because the way you behave. I'm going to do good for you so that through you, I can do good for all the world. And here's how this whole thing is going to work. Here are the parameters. Live as you were created to live. Live as you were designed to live. Live in love for me and live in love for others. That's how you're designed. That's how you're created to live as humans upon this earth. And when the world sees how blessed you will be by living in right relationship with me and right relationship with others, they are going to want what you have. And to the Israelites, they were like, God, I don't know, man. Can you just be a little more specific? To which God gives 10 practical examples of what it means to love him and what it means to love others. We know these better as the 10 commandments. They begin like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, I, I know, I know, I know, I know God is saying, I just said that, but I'm going to reiterate this time and time again so you never forget, I am the one who did this. I am the one who brought you up out of the land of slavery. So number one, you shall have no other gods before me. 
To which the Israelites thought, of course, why would we ever have another God before you? God, we have seen what you are capable of. We have seen what you did to the Egyptians. We have seen your power and your strength. You see, God had to make a very mighty spectacle of the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians had no right to say we were the ones who did that. Yeah, you know, you didn't bring the boils. You didn't bring the locusts. You didn't bring the darkness. You didn't bring the ten miracles that God brought upon the Egyptians. You did not part the Red Sea. The Israelites could not say it was our strength, it was our power that brought us up out of Egypt. No, God had to make a mighty spectacle so that they would trust him, that they would know his goodness, and that his fame then would go before them throughout all the earth. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And this is probably where the Israelites began to get a little bit confused. This is probably where the Israelites began to scratch their head just a little bit, I think. They would say, wait, God, what, what, what do you mean we're not to make an image? I mean, <laughs> every God that we've ever known or have heard of has a crafted idol in a temple somewhere. Every single God that we have ever known in Egypt, the thousands of, God that the Egypt, the thousands of gods that the Egyptians worshipped, every single one of them had a little trinket idol standing on a stand inside of a temple. What do you mean not, not, not to make an image of you? Every god needs a represent, representative. Every god needs an image. Every god needs an idol. That's how they represent themselves to the world. How would we know who you are if we don't have a representative? And God said, don't do it. Don't make an image out of me. Hence, the Israelites agreed that they would do everything that the Lord commanded, that they would obey. And so it's so funny that one day, Moses goes up the mountain. He spends 40 days up there. And the Israelites are like, dude, why is this guy taking so long? You're like, what's going on? What is he doing up there? We're getting antsy down here. You guys may know how the story goes. They go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, come on. Why don't you just make us the gods who will go before us? Make us some gods. Craft something out of gold or out of stone that we can worship. I mean, come on. Didn't God just say don't do this? The memory of the Israelites is just mind-boggling. Didn't God just say, I mean, the people are still waiting for the ink to dry, and they're already abandoning God's instructions for the nation. They're already stepping outside the parameters of what it means to be in right relationship with God. And so Aaron, being the bold and valiant leader that he is, says, how dare you tempt me to disgrace and defile my God? That's not what he said at all, actually. He said, sure, why not? Why don't you just, you know, take off your earrings? Throw them my way, I'll throw them into the furnace. He took with a hand of them, they made it into an image, cast in the shape of a calf. Fashioning it with a tool, then they said, these are the gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What the heck is going on? Seriously, I mean, come on, that, that thing that you just made with your hands, I literally just saw you hit that thing with a tool. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt, it doesn't make sense to us. It's completely mind-boggling. We think it's ludicrous. We think it's insane. We think it's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. But you have to understand that this made perfect sense to the Israelites. Perfect sense to the Israelites. Every God that they had ever known had a physical representative on the earth, and so they were simply giving this God one. They were not worshiping a different God. They were simply giving the God who brought them up out of Egypt an image. But it did not end well for the Israelites. But it's not because God didn't want an image. It's because he already has an image. 
He already has a representation on the earth. He didn't want a blind, deaf, mute trinket to represent his life and his pursuit and his love. He created humanity in his image to be his image bearers upon the earth. My friends, we are supposed to represent God. And these ten instructions were to be relating rightly to God for idiots. At the end of the day, that's really what they were. These ten instructions were the basic manual for what it meant to be an image bearer, what it meant to be a representation of God. Love God. Love others. Put God first and put him only. That's one and two. Honor him with your words, number three. Remember your vocation, number four. And then the next six are just about honoring others. You know, like, honor your mother and father, because don't they do a lot for you? Honor your mother and father. You know, like, don't murder people, or don't steal, or cheat, or don't cheat on your spouse, or don't covet. You know, stuff like that. In other words, honor God, honor others. Live embodying love, live like God does. Or in other words, in the words of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Or in the words of Paul to the Romans, the commandments do not commit adultery and do not murder and do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandment there may be are all summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself because love is the fulfillment of the law. Or in other words, the entire law is summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. My friends, this is what it was always supposed to be about. It wasn't like Jesus and Paul were, were giving a new meaning or a new interpretation to the law. They were simply providing the meaning and the interpretation that the Israelites were supposed to have grasped but couldn't and didn't. And because the Israelites were idiots, as we are idiots as well, right? They couldn't understand what God meant from these 10 simple instructions. God gives them an additional 603 examples of what it means to love their neighbor within their culture and within their context. See, the principle of law, of the law was simple. Love God and have this love that you have for God. Give it hands and feet as you interact with the person next to you. Love God and then give that love Hands and feet as you interact with the person next to you. Before you open your mouth, ask yourself, is what I'm about to say honoring and loving of those listening and who I am speaking about? Before I direct my eyes, is what I'm about to view honoring and loving of the person I'm viewing and of other relationships that are not currently present? Before I move my hands, is what I'm about to do honoring and loving of those what I do will affect. Before I open my wallet, is this generous or is it greedy? Is it gluttonous or is it giving? Before I spend my time, is what I'm doing helping me become more like Jesus? Or do I constantly find myself living in regret? Before I engage this relationship, is it edifying to me and to them? Am I encouraged from being with this person? Are they pushing me to be more like Jesus? Or am I discouraged and tempted and pushed to do things that I know in my head and in my heart and in my soul I ought not to be doing? Before I move, I should ask myself, is the way I am moving going to represent God well? 
And the reason this is such a big deal is at least twofold. First, love, true sacrificial other-oriented love is the only force in all of the world that pushes back against the selfish, sinful, self-reigning behavior. Love defeats the satanic, self-preserving, self-reigning actions that humanity has succumbed to. Because love is self-sacrificial, and it is other-oriented, and it is choice-based, and it is all about you, and it is enduring, it is an action. It is not about me, it is all about you. And so when love bumps up against the me, 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 self-reign, it's all about me, I couldn't care less about you mentality, love is the only force that can defeat that. Love is the only force that pushes against that. But there's one little interesting caveat, and I'm going to talk a lot about this next week, or more about this next week, as we learn about how the Israelites are going to conquer the land. Very, very challenging texts in Scripture. But we, we live in a society, I think, where tolerance is quickly becoming the greatest good. I think we live in a society where tolerance is quickly becoming the greatest good. But you have to understand, right, that if if God says that being made in his image and being a representation of him, living in love for him and living in love for others, being an image bearer of him, that is the greatest good. That is what we must strive to do. You see, those who champion tolerance would say, well, that's what we're doing. You know, we want to promote love. That's exactly what we're trying to accomplish. We're just loving everybody, when in fact, tolerance tells people who are far from God that it's okay to stay where you are. And it tells people who are far from God and far from God's image that it's okay to stay where they are. And not only that, but they celebrate where they are. And my friends, that is not love. Because love goes out It leaves and it pursues people where they are and then it embraces them where they are. But this is so important with the fullness and with the totality of both truth and grace invites them home. My friends, that is a world of difference from the society that we live in. You see, love reorients our life as image bearers of the God who is himself the very definition of love. And this is why love is the most powerful force in all of the universe. We'll chat more about that next week. But the second reason that this is so important, that love is so important, this love, this rule of love of God, is because Israel represented God whether they liked it or not. They represented God whether they liked it or not. And the reason that God was so harsh towards their behavior was because the world was supposed to know who He was through them. He was wanting to do good for the world that through his goodness to his people that all of the world might experience his goodness. And so he wanted to shine his light so brightly upon one nation so that all the world might see it and come running. That they would be a beacon of hope for the world. But if they don't represent him well, then none of that can happen. None of the world is going to know who God is if they don't represent him well. And so if they live like a selfish, idol-worshipping world, then they're not going to have a light to shine. And the world will never know that they were created to live differently. I'm going to invite Emily forward, and we're going to sing one final song together as we reflect on this for just one moment as we close out our service. My friends, humans are selfish. 
Are they not? I mean, can we just agree to that very simple fact this morning that humans are selfish? Um, not generically, but let's internalize this and personalize a little bit. We are selfish. Having received this command to love rubs up against something deep within us. But, but what would it look like, you know, if, if, if there was a people upon the planet that thought less of themselves and more of other people? You know, what would it look like if there was a people upon the planet who gave of themselves generously for the benefit of other people? What would it look like if there were a people who slowed their tongue and spoke only that which would edify and encourage other people? What if people helped more and gave more and served more? You see, the Israelites, they received this great command that they were to love God and love others, but they constantly found loopholes. They were told that they were to love their neighbor as themselves, and this specific command comes from Leviticus. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one another. I'm sorry, one of your own people, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. And so they would ask yourselves, well, who was my neighbor? And they would say, well, according to the text, according to the law, a neighbor is one of our own people. And so you know what? According to this, we don't have to love the Assyrians. We don't have to love those Babylonians, those pagan-worshipping Egyptians. They can go rot for all we care. We're not obligated to love them. All we are obligated to love, according to the law, is our people. That is who our neighbor is. And so they defined narrow so narrowly that they provided a loophole for them not to be the light to the world. And they felt justified in doing so. And so the good God was doing in them didn't extend to the world as it was supposed to. Because the Jewish people intermixed this command to love God with their own selfish ambition. And it burdens me to say it, but the church, I think, has caved into the same mentality. See, too many Christians have thought that they can claim the name of Jesus but not submit to his rule. I can claim Jesus, I can call myself Christian, but I don't need to submit to his rule. I don't need to submit to the law of love. See, too many Christians have taken a hold of the grace that forgives, but not a grace that transforms. And the burden is that too, is that we too represent God, whether we like it or not. Do you guys understand that? That as we leave this place and this church and this body of people and other churches as well, we represent God whether we like it or not. When we fail to submit and surrender all of our life and every component of our life to the rule of love, then not only are we not living up to God's design for us as humans, but we are failing to show the world who God truly is. And the world is getting a bad perception of who God is because the church represents God whether we like it or not. This is why the church is a joke, my friends. And this is why the world thinks Christians are bigoted hypocrites. And this is why the church is losing its appeal and losing the culture. And why more and more and more and more people want less and less and less to do with it. My friends, that needs to change. It absolutely needs to change. We must be the ones to change that. We hold in our midst what every single person on this planet is desperately longing for. And so this absolutely needs to change. Father in heaven, you've given us an incredible responsibility. You've called us to represent you to the world. 
as, as image bearers, as people made in your image, we are to represent you to the world. And so you have given your people a law that we are to be in love with you and in love with others. And Father, the mystery of all that is that when we do that by your strength, that the world would be drawn into it. And, and it'll function like an unfolding flower, a continually blossoming flower that grows bigger and bigger, Father, and envelops more and more of your creation. So, Father, I pray that we might be a people who are in love for you, and we would learn then and think and get creative about what it means to apply that same love to our hands and our feet as we interact with the people next to us. Father, one way or another, we're representing you. We are your ambassadors, and that it can be a, a terrifying thing, Father, or it can be such an exciting thing as we see people transformed through this love. And so, Father, we do ask, we do pray that you would strengthen our resolve and that you would open up our eyes to see where we have failed to put our lives underneath your rule. That you would help us to see where in our life that we are failing to love you and where we are failing to apply that love to the person next to us. I pray, Father, that we would represent you well as a church body. That when people think of Restoration Church, they would think the love of God. And that many, many, many might come to know you for the first time, Father, or to recommit their life under your role because of what we are doing here together. What an exciting time to be the church, Father. There's such a great need for us. Thank you for empowering us to do what you've called us to do. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.